0: relevant and fun as two nerdy bookworms we appreciate the role of classic lit but we won't get too academic about it we'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe and help stock your tbr pile with old and new reads for every literary taste today we're discussing *Middlemarch* by george elliott hey chelsea hi sarah and hi theo <laughs> we have another co-host with us today
1: he was doing a lot of vocal warm-ups today, so we'll see if he has anything to say now.
0: (laughs) I'd be very curious to hear his thoughts about Middlemarch. He heard a lot of it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, we're reading a little bit differently these days. This episode is coming out, oh, I don't know, two months later than we intended. But we're just grateful to be able to do this grateful that everyone has stuck with us and hopefully you're excited about this episode even though it isn't the timeliest and we're doing this a little bit differently today and things might look a little bit different on the podcast for the coming months chelsea do you want to talk a little bit about some changes we're making sure
1: so this is partly just to keep things sustainable for us right now um, but also because we have been so happy to see how many people are reading along with us each month and so we are going to do one classic per month for the foreseeable future like we'll stop and assess after a while but um, just one classic per month instead of two. Um, They won't always be big like Middlemarch or (laughs) Jane Eyre Um, and then instead of um, having those two different classics episodes, we're going to split these episodes differently. So what we're doing for Middle March and what we'll do, for instance, next month for Love and Friendship by Jane Austen, we'll have part one, which is the main discussion, and then part two, which is a little bit more of a discussion and our in-depth pairings. So we're splitting the episodes up a little bit differently. This, we hope, will afford people the flex if they didn't read the classic yet that they could just listen to the pairings mm-hmm. um, or I think we're going to do our best to keep things as spoiler free as possible so that we just can include as many listeners as we can in the experience with us so um, did that make sense <laughs> sometimes I'm explaining things these days and I'm like came out of my mouth, but I don't know if it made sense.
0: It made sense to me. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so one classic per month, two episodes about each classic, one the deep dive discussion, and the other the pairings. Yeah. And yeah, I, I I think what you said too is just so true. We've we didn't when we launched this podcast, we specifically said we are not trying to convince people to read these books. Like that was not the goal. And that's still not the goal, but we are so delighted by how many people do read along with us and we want to make that manageable for people who who want to so one classic a month will help with that we hope um and yeah we'll keep you updated if we decide we want to go back to the two classics a month format but for now it will be manageable for us and enjoyable for you listeners we hope and that being said we're somehow going to try to talk about this giant book in one discussion (laughs) episode. Uh,
1: One discussion episode, but we're really excited to be talking about it with Classics Club. So if you miss the additional novel pairings commentary and just the extra classics episodes, the best place for all of that is to go to patreon.com slash novel pairings. That's really where we're focusing a lot of our energy because it's very limited these days. Um, and we're excited to have our Classics Club community to talk about books and and get really nerdy with. So that's a, a good place to be.
0: All right, Chelsea. Well, with that new kind of episode structure out there, and that's what we're doing today for Middle March, but it is going to be challenging to talk about this big book in an hour so we're going to do our best we're going to talk about what most interests us what we think will most interest you the listeners we're going to keep this relatively spoiler free until we give you a warning and then we'll talk about the very end or I don't know maybe this book can't even really totally have that many spoilers because it's so old and so long and there are so many plot points that we can't touch on at all but let's talk about the storylines that most interested us, what were you drawn to in your reading of Middlemarch?
1: I don't think it's surprising that I was most drawn to the relationships and personal growth of the characters, certainly more than any of the political subplots or religious subplots or Uh, legal subplots there's a lot (laughs) happening in the town and there's so much of the day-to-day just the minute details of how things work and function and who's taking over for whom and what this town drama is um All of that stuff is, was lovely chapter to chapter, but overall it's not what I'm going to remember, Mm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I was certainly drawn to Dorothea's arc, um, partly because I just, she's not really a cool literary heroine to relate to, because she's very goody-goody, but I did relate to her. (laughs) She, uh, her sort of earnest goodness in the beginning and perfectionism, I really related to, and I loved her character arc and journey of sort of recognizing what goodness and being virtuous actually means in the real world. So I was very drawn to that. Um, every time Mary was on the page, I loved her sass, but I don't, I don't even know if that those kind of storylines mm. because I didn't care about their relationships that huh. much. I just cared more about them as people.
0: Interesting. Yeah. I think that's a really good way to say it. And I'm not, I'm not sure that's how I would have put it, but I do. Th- I think I agree that I'm more interested in, I mean, this is a, a character driven book, I guess. So, so discussing which characters we're most drawn to is maybe a better way of talking about it in terms of storylines or plot points. I I really enjoy Dorothea as a character. I'm not sure how much I relate to her. There are certainly elements that that I do for, sure. I, I like her desire to be kind of a heroine, but her own brand of one and how early in the novel she's so young and she does kind of have like an earnest self-centeredness <laughs> mm-hmm. like and it, and i don't even mean that in a in a particularly negative way like she just she really wants to have an impact on her world and thinks that she can and i I like that too. I I think we don't see so much earnestness in literary figures today. And I enjoy that quality.
1: I thought she was really funny without intending to be. Oh, yes. And a lot of that has to do with Elliot's narration.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: But. Some of my favorite scenes early in the novel were between Dorothea and Celia. And Celia (laughs) really knows who Dorothea truly is. Uh Like, she gets that a lot of this, you know, religious piety is a show Mm -hmm. of who Dorothea thinks she should be. And Celia knows who she really, truly is. Um, And so their interactions were hilarious and layered. And I loved those. Mm -hmm. Because, like, um, when... Dorothea is sort of distributing their jewelry. jewelry. Yes, that's the scene I was thinking (laughs) of too. So funny. And Celia is like, okay, so you don't think that you should wear this because it's showy, but you think I should? (laughs) (laughs) And she just gets her sister in a way that a lot of the other characters of the town kind of don't. Um, I also, I love that Dorothea, there's a great line about how like, she feels like she probably should give up horseback riding because it's, like, this physical, sensual activity that she gets a lot of joy from. And she's a great horseback rider. And it's not punishing her in any way. She, like, feels like everything should be sort of, like, pious punishment for her. And so she feels like she should get it up. And she very much looks forward to quitting someday. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that yes constantly atoning or something i i think about dorothea that the the, something that comes to my mind is um something a fellow teacher said to me once about teenagers just that teenagers are the most self-conscious and the least Uh, (laughs) (laughs) self-aware yeah and i feel like dorothea really is like that like she she is self-conscious and The sense that she really thinks she knows who she wants to be, but she doesn't have a great awareness of who maybe she really is yet. And we do get to see that develop for her throughout the course of the novel, and I enjoyed that journey. I agree. I
1: also just think, I mean, she kind of spins so much on its head. She's this beautiful girl in the town. Like, she's desired by many. Yes. And then everyone's just so upset because she goes for Casabon, who is this old, decrepit, like, ugly man who doesn't have much to offer her. And she thinks that she's getting, like, the best deal in the world when she (laughs) marries him. Um, And she just, like I said, she just really spins a lot of um, the literature of the time in a totally new way.
0: Um, I think Elliot is so clever in that. Should we should we just kind of delve into that then? I I think that that yeah. is one of the most interesting things about this book. For me, it was basically impossible to read it without kind of comparing it or putting it into conversation with Jane Austen. Um, of course, we know that Elliot read Jane Austen. Um, and... And also in conversation with Virginia Woolf, I think because Woolf wrote about Austin and Eliot, we mentioned this, I believe, in our um, intro episode that Virginia Woolf thought that George Eliot shouldn't have been a novelist, that if she lived in a more modern time, she would have been a historian instead um, and been like that kind of documentarian instead of a writer of fiction, which I think is. I don't know that I agree, but I think is interesting. Um, and so, yeah, how how did you see this book? You talked about Dorothea's relationship being maybe a commentary on some of these other marriage plots or these other novels of the time or precursing novels. How did you see that at work in this book?
1: That's a good question. So one of the quotes from Virginia Woolf that I love is that She says Middlemarch is one of the few English novels written for grown up people. (laughs) And I think that sort of what that means is we get a lot of these novels where you are following a young heroine, her coming of age story, and then she gets married, and then the story is done. Mm -hmm. And that's the story arc. So we, you know, one of the more recent books that we read all together was Jane Eyre. And, you know, in Jane Eyre, like she's a young girl, a young woman. She gets married at the end and like, that's all. (laughs) And that feels like a very, that is a, a book that a younger person could read. And really, that might be as far as they can see for themselves. That seems like sort of the end of the end of youth is that like marriage marker. Where Middlemarch is a novel for grown-ups is the marriages are off the page, like the weddings are off the page, the marriages, we're in the middle of the marriages. Middlemarch is not just referring to the town, like we're in the middle of the marriages, we're like coming into the middle of a lot of these people's lives where they are exploring what it means to have married someone that maybe they didn't court for very long, or to have married someone that they knew for a very long time, or deciding on marriage and so rather than that traditional marriage plot where it's like oh coming of age and then we get married this is like okay here are all these characters oh my goodness they got married off page here they are now in the thick of it together and here's where their problems are popping up and it makes it so um real Elliot I can see I mean I guess I can see where the historian comment comes from because Elliot is so realistic in her writing um yeah I don't know did that even answer your question
0: (laughs) yeah oh it did yeah definitely I I agree I think that the you know seeing what happens after marriage is the aspect of this book I mean that's really what the book in many ways is about largely but that seems to be most directly commenting on or again in conversation with the marriage plot novel where you know instead of um marriage being the end it is the the beginning for i mean we we get to see the lead up we get to see the the courting or lack thereof um here and then but then yeah we really explore the marriages themselves I I think that is I don't I don't know I mean I I don't think that that's to say that an author like Jane Austen had a more naive or juvenile view of marriage and relationships although you know she she did not have one whereas George Eliot had her own very complicated relationship romantic relationship um But I think maybe that was really the only kind of novel available to somebody like Jane Austen to write. And so I I think it's really cool to kind of see the expansion and continuation of quote-unquote women's literature um, in this this direction. I, I also think that the way she creates some of the characters is perhaps also subverting some expectations of of a romantic heroine like you said how Dorothea is um not the underdog kind of character in many ways like she has a pretty decent inheritance she's beautiful she's smart she she's the one who gets in her own way of marital happiness instead of it being circumstances that she has to overcome which i think is is in many ways more interesting of a story than a um, almost unflawed heroine overcoming circumstances. Even though I love those stories too.
1: Yeah, it's way easier to relate to. I think that's part of why these characters feel so real. Like you could be, you could pop in there and be friends with them. Whereas, (laughs) you know, we talk about our Austin heroines like they're goddesses or something. Mm-hmm. Totally. <laughs> and they kind of feel that way. Um, although there's, you know, I think Austin has her own way of making realistic people populate the page, but um Middlemarch was realistic in a totally different way. And I, so I actually think part of that was the characters and Elliot's expert characterization. And I just think part of that was the way that she wrote about them mm-hmm because she's so sharp and insightful and you can just this narrator just like nails these characters down does not sugarcoat who they are we get to see their you know ugly sides we get to see them make mistakes almost every single character in this book fails at something major and I don't know there's something really refreshing about that
0: well, let's talk about one of the big mistakes that we already touched on: Dorothea's first marriage <laughs> um, to Reverend Casaubon. I mentioned that I've had a couple like false starts with this novel, so I think I've read the first fifty pages maybe four times, even though I've only read the book in full twice. And each time, I just, I just cringe both at dorothea's choice and at mr brooke and he's kind of a a mr bennett like figure um in many ways like a very just kind of hands-off parental (laughs) figure um and i feel the same like indignation that james why am i blanking on his name
1: oh yeah 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 yeah
0: who ends up with celia Oh, James. James, they, you know. James. I think
1: hard, the part of the hard part is like by the end of the book he's just referred to as James yeah. because he's married to Celia yeah. so his relationship to everyone has changed and they just call him James so I can't remember his name
0: either. Great, so, well. No problem. I, I feel the same righteous <laughs> indignation as James being like how could how could we fail Dorothea and let this this happen. But of course it's you know written in the pages of the book so it happens every time you read it. What did you think about relationship and did you have any hope for it or did you just know like this is doomed
1: (laughs) the hope is that he dies right Mm -hmm. as horrible as that sounds the hope is that he dies and leaves her his estate and a bunch of money so that she can do what she wants with it which is kind of what happens yeah And then you want to feel happy about that, but you can't even feel happy about that because he puts these caveats in place and Dorothea ends up in a totally different place than you're expecting Mm -hmm. her to. And so, yeah, like modern sensibility, it's like, oh, well, she's marrying this way older man who she's marrying for his mind, which turns out to not even be that great. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he's got all this money. He's got like this clout in the community and you just hope that he goes away so that she can be a widow and do whatever she wants. So yeah, I didn't have any hope that this would be like a great romance or anything. Um, and certainly wasn't expecting it to. I know that he's an easy character to hate. He's icky. I get that. I felt really indifferent about Casabon I felt more sort of like irritated that Dorothea went down this path and made this choice, but she was so. The characters change so much over the courses of the course of eight hundred pages. It's like how can you stay upset with them for very long because mm-hmm. they change a lot.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and I I even think that I mean, yeah, he's a great character to to revile, but some of the commentary about marriage that Eliot gets to through him I think is very relatable just about like how I mean especially considering marriage at this time where you like didn't necessarily know the person as well at least not as intimately even if you knew them for a long time his kind of commentary about how like he thought that having a wife would basically be someone who would reflect back all of his like positive qualities all the time and then he, you know, realizes that having somebody there day in and day out really just reflects back your real self, and that's what he becomes so mm. kind of bitter with Dorothea about. Is like he he sees his he sees his flaws through her as she sees his flaws, even though she's very forgiving, because he now has like this witness to his day to day. He is more aware of his own his own issues and I mean I think that that is like very true of intimate relationships that um that like level of of almost scrutiny or concern about scrutiny scrutiny and so I yeah I I I think I do really dislike Casabon. I I wouldn't describe myself as indifferent, but I I think that there are moments, even though what he chooses to do because of his feelings is absolutely reprehensible, I don't think his his feelings about like, oh, this is not what I thought it would be like to be close to another person um, aren't like totally out there.
1: No, I've been watching a lot of reality TV lately, because that's like about all that my brain can handle when baby goes down for a nap and I'm like, okay, so I can stare at a blank wall for a while and try (laughs) and read a book or I can watch some trashy shows (laughs) and trash TV wins out a lot of the time. So I have been watching The Bachelor really begrudgingly, like half watching it, to be honest. And I just watched Love is Blind and Um, us too. (laughs) <laughs> the The idea behind those shows is that a relationship, in particular marriage, is going to magically make the rest of your life better. Mm-hmm. And that is what Dorothea and Casabon go into. And mm-hmm. that's what they think. And of course, like these reality TV marriages, it falls apart. Dorothea thinks, okay, I'm going to get married. And because I'm married, I can study what I want to and I can be the wife of a great man and I can do great things in society because of him and he thinks like oh I'm going to get married and magically because I have a wife I'll be more successful I will feel better about myself and it's not that it's not the people that they're after like Dorothea isn't actually interested in Casabon he's not actually interested in her it's the marriage and I just that's the reality TV formula is like these people are after happiness. They're after a certain milestone in their lives. They're not after actually that specific person. And I think in Middlemarch we get some relationships that then are the opposite of that and end up kind of successful. So Mary and Fred have known each other since they were little kids and Mary has no false impressions of who Fred is. Like she knows he's kind of, you know, lazy and floundering and whatnot, but she loves him anyway. She's committed to waiting for him and sort of like letting that relationship and letting him sort himself out before they get married. And that patience pays off. So I don't know. It's, who would have thought that we could relate Middlemarch by Georgia <laughs> to reality television, but it's just, people haven't changed that much. They yeah. think marriage <laughs> is going to solve other problems and then it
0: doesn't. Yeah. It's so true. I, I love that comparison. And yeah, I, I think that, that Mary is such a great kind of foil to Dorothea. And I, I love that, George Eliot doesn't like force us to compare these women in a way that's like, oh, this one is the way you should be. And this is the one you should not. They're, they're all very, just fully developed, nuanced characters. But it is interesting to, to, to compare like their motivations and, and how they, how they make their decisions. You're so right that that Mary is the one who seems more focused on the person, the real relationship, rather than the milestone. Unlike the, you know, the other uh, relationship, key relationship in this book with Rosamond and Lydgate, like they also are both much more focused on. I mean, they they tell us they fall passionately in love, but also like it just seems like they're both. Like, oh, well, this is what we do now. We, we get married.
1: Yeah, they have a reality TV relationship, too. For sure. It's just that they have the, like, oh, I got swept up in the passion of the moment and the lights and cameras on me and <laughs> I, I went for it. I think we should talk a little bit about Lydgate, because yes, Middlemarch, absolutely, marriage is a huge theme in this novel, but it isn't the only theme that Elliot is exploring. And I think Lydgate is sort of the vehicle for a lot of the other things that she is interested in here. He's interested in science. He Mm -hmm. wants to change the world with the scientific discovery. And some people in the community are kind of resistant to his methods. He meets some resistance in other ways. There's just a lot of change happening in this book, um, politically, socially, scientifically. And so I'm wondering if there's anything that you have to say or what you think about his character Um, or anyone else in relation to some of the other things that Elliot is talking about besides the relationships, besides the marriages.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, first of all, I, every time Lydgate and discussions about the hospitals came up, I have thought of Downton Abbey and the, all of the (laughs) fights over the, the hospital in that community and the changes and whatnot, um, so that always made me smile. But yeah, I mean, I think that, I think personal ambition is one of the major themes we get to see through Lydgate, as well as Dorothea, but um, Lydgate maybe even more clearly, but also I think that he represents a change and also a connection between Middlemarch change coming to middlemarch and also like middlemarch's now connection expansion being in touch with the larger world and how much discomfort there is with that um to have like an outsider come in but also somebody with very different views and how that can shake up an entire community I think that was happening a lot throughout England at this time with the expansion of the railroads and more books being published and dispersed and um, wider spread of provocative ideas like like Darwin's theories. And there's there's just so much like that happening. And he, if not fully represents all of that, certainly brings those themes to mind.
1: I don't remember where I read this. I can try and find the article to put in show notes, but I just have it in my notes here from some of the background research that I did. But essentially, this article talked about how Middlemarch is entering into this sort of conversation and it takes place and was written in this time period where being good went from simply doing good things in your small community. So like Emma, for instance, Jane Austen's Emma. She is a do-gooder. She's doing good because she takes food to people in her community. She's the aristocrat who is doing charity. And so we go from that personal sense of like, this is what good is, to through all of these social reforms, all of the sudden, doing good is... Democratic. It's like available to everyone. You don't have to have money in order to do good in the world. You can be a Tertius Lydgate who is not wealthy but has education and through his education wants to make a difference in the world. You can you can be someone of lower status and make changes because education is being more widely available and the democratic process the politics of the time are changing and being more widely available to people so doing good is becoming this like much bigger thing and I I see where that comes into play with this novel we have all of these characters who are trying to do good in some way whether it is through religion trying to improve life for all mankind trying to sort of do good for love trying to do good and just like get rid of the badness of the world and they don't do a good job of doing good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but then at the same time, like these opportunities are, are ready for them to sort of do good beyond their, their, their lives and how, we see how it connects to the, the rest of the community. Um, this is kind of jumping ahead, but I think one of my favorite things in the epilogue is where, mary writes a book for her sons and it's evident that they just love this and it gets published and brings children a lot of happiness and there's just this sense of like oh that small thing that she did for her kids like
0: is a good thing mm-hmm. yeah i i really like that and and i think maybe we we've already had our our book club discussion with our um lit scholars our patreon lit scholars and we talked a bit about the the very end the last sentences and i i kind of want i think we should end with that so let's come back to to the epilogue in a in a bit but um i love that that theme that you're you're bringing up and i think doing good is such a great way to think about these characters and what they want because um i you know their is many of their ambitions and we see kind of ambition merging in these these ways in some of these characters. They they want to be known and successful, but they want to be known and successful for some of these like larger grand ideas that they have to to influence their their sphere. And that is that does feel new in in this sense.
1: Something that we did bring up in book club that I think is just worth mentioning here is that that idea of okay we have these ambitions to do good in the world but sometimes the best thing we can do is the good for our own family do something good for our small town do something good for our friends like do something just in our small sphere we talked about how that message seems to be resonating with so many people right mm-hmm. now, and that seems to be coming back. So it almost, Middle March just seems to be such a good book to return to because in many ways, that industrial revolution period, all of the changes that people were going through then feel very much like the changes that we're going through now in the tech revolution, whatever you want to call it. All of a sudden, they had railroad access. They had access to, you know, think about when the telephone was invented. Think about when all of these things that made life faster and easier and people more accessible. Think of those big changes. We're going through something really similar. And we have been going through that for the last couple of decades. And it's really hard. Mm -hmm. And I think... Reading Middlemarch and seeing how hard it is for these characters to grapple with that is a good way of reminding ourselves that, oh my goodness, like we don't have to have it figured out. We don't always have to know how to respond on social media. We don't always have to respond on social media. Maybe it is still just the most important thing that we're good people to the people in our lives. And Mm -hmm. maybe that will actually still make a difference in the world because Mm -hmm. the world's going to keep changing and expanding But the fact that this novel still feels so timely and still feels so deeply human and we can connect with these characters, certainly that suggests something about human nature and how it hasn't changed all that much. How our goal to be good, maybe maybe it's not that different. And Eliot is so wise.
0: I think that's really, really well said. And I think one of the maybe poignancies of reading this novel Is for me, at least in some ways, it's like I feel the anxieties of these characters very, very deeply. Um, Those those changes coming, that pressure to um, to do a larger good when maybe the smaller good is where the more meaningful change could be. But I also feel like. So few of us live in the sort of communities that Middlemarch is is examining where Yeah, just that like, you know, that your choices have very visible effects on a closed circle of people. It's kind of harder to see sometimes in our in our contemporary world. And I I found that really fascinating. And I mean she she calls it her her subtitle is a study in provincial life, and I yeah that that closed circle was uh, while still being expansive, it was just so enjoyable and such a reflection of its time, but also something that I, I it made me desire a little bit more community, I guess. At the same time, even though like the community is not an idyllic one. <laughs>
1: same here but i i think that has so much to do with so much to do with our craving for community in other ways we've been in a pandemic for so long you and i are new mothers who haven't been able to gather with our friends who are moms to like have that community in motherhood that'll you know that i think is ideal for a lot of people we It is so much fun to meet with our book club online, Mm -hmm. but like also the couple of friends that I had close by moved away and I haven't been able to gather in person with like more than one person at a time for a really long time. Yeah, And I think that that hunger for community when reading Middlemarch, even though the community is imperfect, I think so many of us can relate to that right now just because of the state of the world. Um, I think this season, so it's winter here, it's like literally another, we just had a blizzard yesterday, we're in another one right now, like I looked out my window this afternoon and it was just, the snow was coming down again, and I'm like, oh my gosh, when am I going to be able to like go for a walk with anyone, or you know, see people outside, I think this time of year, this season of our lives, like that is I think so many of our listeners will relate to that. And we touched on a little bit at the top of the episode, or maybe this was in book club, how this middle March, so many people were picking this book up as their pandemic read. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe we're, we're getting at why here that sense of community, even if it's imperfect, it's yeah. still really desirable for a lot of us.
0: I think so. I think that's, that's so true, but I think another thing, thing to point to is the brilliance and liveliness of Elliot's writing. So Chelsea, what did you think of of her of her prose?
1: I loved it. That was probably my favorite part of the book. Also, I'm sorry if you hear a crying baby. I don't know if you can hear him, Sarah.
0: I wasn't sure if that was your baby or mine. <laughs> <laughs>
1: The babies are with their dads, so they're fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just thought of that. I was like, oh my gosh! If people listen to this and hear like my baby crying, of course, like who's gonna who's gonna write in about me being a bad mother and letting no, my baby no, no, cry while I'm podcasting? <laughs> He's with his dad. It's fine. Um, no, anyway, Elliot's writing was my favorite part. Um, I'm a sucker for a strong voice whether that's in memoir or like a narrator who really makes a statement in prose, and this narrator does. Um, I read a description of Elliot's narration as gently intrusive, Mm -hmm. and I love that so much because that's just like the perfect description. The narrator isn't inserting themselves into the into the story all the time but just enough that you get the sense of like there's this I don't know this wry humor in there and there's I don't know it's just so 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 good there's it, the narrator is part of the humor and then also like this amazing pulse on human nature where, like, you can yes. underline so many lines and you can, like, mark this book up and save those things because you're like, oh, my gosh, they just really... Elliot really gets it. Or, oh, I feel so seen. Or, oh, my goodness, this just makes so much sense. I'm trying to think of some of them. I have some of my Kindle highlights pulled up. But um I I love Elliot's writing. What about you, Sarah?
0: Oh, same. And I, I thought it really came to life on on audio for me, even though then I was really sad that I wasn't, you know, didn't have my pencil and book darts or just, you know, my Kindle (laughs) uh, highlight feature to capture some of those because I would, you know, think, Oh, I have to remember that and, and look it up. And then I, of course I, I wouldn't, but um, yeah, I, I think her, her writing is, is so sharp Sharp, but also kind of languid, and how like she she explores things in a kind of leisurely pace at times. But then when she like hits you with a, a zinger or commentary on human nature, it's so um so sharp and and profound. And I I find that I don't. It's not that I think that writers today are like less observant or less attuned to you know human nature, but it's just a, people don't write in this way. As much where they're like offering sort of aphorisms about life. And maybe we wouldn't even enjoy that in contemporary fiction, but I just, I really enjoy that type of writing when I find it in the classics.
1: I love that type of writing. I think I'm trying to think of where I perhaps see it most. I'm sure it's more so found in nonfiction than fiction, but. Yeah, I, I love coming across a narrator like this. And I know, I think that, um, I don't know if you mentioned this in our sort of like intro to Middlemarch that we did way back <laughs> in the day now, um, but that this is a book that so many authors yeah. cite as a favorite. Mm-hmm. And I... I have to wonder if part of that is the expert narration because it's just like such a master class in storytelling and character development. but just I don't know. I think it it's really hard to have a narrator like this that doesn't just take away from the story entirely. but I loved the sort of asides and because I listened to it a lot as well, I wish there was there were some things that I could mark just like the way that the narrator sort of makes, makes themselves known. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some really clever ways that it was done and there were just some really smart and funny ways that they popped up that I wish I could have marked to cite for this episode. I'm sure, I'm sure some of our listeners have them yes. written down or marked somewhere, but it was just a lot of fun.
0: Well, let's talk about the, the very end. I mean, there's no way we're going. We were going to be able to touch on everything, and this is this discussion has been maybe a lot more general than we usually get on um, on our episodes. But that's okay. I I think that that just makes sense for for this book. But in terms of the the specifics, um, the the very end really spoke to a lot of our patreon community and um it's just a, a lovely last line somebody in our book club brought up that in rebecca mead's book my life in middle march she talks about how the last sentence evolved through different edits of george Eliot's. and i would really like to to see those because it's one of those lines where like everything's just so perfectly chosen um but she's she's talking about dorothea and and says, but the effects of her being on those around her was incalculably diffusive, for the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number of to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. And it's so lovely. It is really lovely. I think
1: I, I read that last line differently now, maybe as a parent that I then I would have read it before having having a baby. Um, not that you can't get just as much out of it. I'm just saying for me personally, I think um, my idea of how I'm shaping the world has really changed mm-hmm. with that. Um, and so it was a it was a lovely last line to read in that way in this time of our lives as we're starting to shape little humans into good people um yeah it's it's so poignant and and yet not it's not like a sickly sweet last poignant line you know no it's like very it's smart and to the point and it is in line with the narration that Elliot provided throughout the rest of the book and yet it just lands a little differently.
0: I agree and I like the the way that the sentence looks backwards as well Mm -hmm. that like we as readers have small moments and quote-unquote small people to thank for any you know the improvements that we see in our in our own lives and the good that we see in our own lives rather than only thinking about the large historical events the like great men in history um who we often more consider to be the ones shaping the world
1: yeah and it goes with that theme of change right where it's not necessarily that there was, you know, sometimes we can cite oh that's a flashpoint and everything changed from then on, but everything had to change because people changed along along with it. So when Elliot is saying things are not so ill with you and me, it's it's the the people um, that were along for the ride and that made changes and yeah, made contributions. It's it's a lovely last sentence to think on and yeah it's a good place good place to end and wrap up but um obviously we'll have our pairings coming up but Sarah if you were to recommend this book what kind of reader would you recommend Middlemarch to who should read Middlemarch besides Classics Club
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think People who love sweeping family stories, multi-generational stories. This actually isn't either of those, really, but it has many of the same beats and notes as as those. I think if you like thinking about the way um, classics are in conversation with each other, thinking about the roots of fiction, I think Middlemarch maybe is the 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 roots of a lot of contemporary fiction. And so yeah, I, th- I think I think those types of readers, maybe historical fiction readers too, if you like especially yeah. like especially detailed historical fiction, um, would enjoy this as well.
1: I actually think that people who read a lot of self-help could get a lot out of reading middlemarch.
0: Ooh, yeah.
1: I think they would get not only sort of the um, the satisfaction of, seeing people change in that sort of self-help kind of way but also just Elliot has so many amazing phrases and amazing sentences that are worth writing down in your little notebook of like motivational quotes or things to help shape your life that it would so be worth reading just for the wisdom.
0: Mm, I think that's so smart and I haven't read this yet I don't think you've read it yet either but going along with that my life in Middlemarch would be a great companion. I think it is almost probably that that same kind of version of like a memoir, um, self help, like pulling the wisdom from from Middlemarch in and what I've heard is a really fantastic way. So I'm excited to pick that up soon.
1: Should we call that your bonus pairing for the
0: week? Great, that's my that's my <laughs> bonus pairing pick of the week that I have not read that and Downton Abbey, but mostly just the scenes where they're fighting about the hospital.
1: Yes. Yes, definitely. This, it does have a very Downton Abbey feel. I guess we could include Downton Abbey fans and people who should read Middlemarch. Yes, totally. And I think if you watch Love is Blind or any other marriage related reality TV shows, that'll be my bonus pick is watching Love is Blind on Netflix. I mean, it is such a wild ride. I think, yeah, you want to examine human psychology go ahead but it makes a really fun pairing with Middlemarch in such an unexpected way i can't stop thinking about how much they relate to each other
0: okay well i think we should record a bonus episode for patreon about that because i'm also watching love is blind although i mean it was hard enough to for us to schedule this recording like maybe we should right? be making promises <laughs> but <laughs> maybe that's a good conversation to have in the discord channel um, yeah instead it would be. <laughs> Well,
1: let's end things there, Sarah. We did it. We recorded a discussion episode. Hooray. I'm really proud of
0: ourselves. <laughs> yes, we are, as we should be. Good for us. And yes. I am really excited to hear about your pairings. We'll get that out soon. Um, and I, I'd also be curious, as always, to know what listeners think of this book. Um, so, So let us know. Get in touch with us.
1: Yes, so a couple ways to do that. If you want to be part of Classics Club, where you get to talk about these classics with us in book club discussions, take classes where we get to be your teachers, listen to bonus episodes, you can go to patreon.com slash novel pairings and join our community. We're going to be reading Love and Friendship together. We have some plans to read a big book together again and just a lot of fun stuff going on. On Patreon. So again, that's patreoncom novel pairings. Of course, we love to see you on Instagram at Novel Pairings Pod, is where to find us. You can tag us in your photos, in your reviews, in your Instagram stories, and share your thoughts on Middle March with us there. And eventually we'll get our newsletter back up and running. That's at NovelPairings.substack.com. That's a great way to sort of be reminded about episodes if you feel like sometimes you don't know because we're a little bit more sporadic right now when we're releasing things um, or to look for announcements that's a good place to find us at novelpairings.substack.com
0: thank you as always to miles eichner and mark anderson for our theme music and we'll be back soon with part two of our middle march discussion sharing contemporary pairings for george Eliot's classic Until then, and I'm so excited to say this again, (laughs) we declare, after all, there's no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything.